Well, it's fantastic to be with all of you this weekend as we continue our journey uh, through the incredible uh, Word of God. Just in case you are wondering, and just to set your um, hearts at ease, you may uh, see around me um, as we're looking. Um, this black curtain and popping up b- behind it is the tip of a mountaintop, and you may be wondering why we have black curtains on the stage and uh, Christmas trees and campsites and mountaintops. And that is because we are about to enter the an epic week of vacation Bible school here at Mosaic Church. So starting tomorrow morning at 8 a.m., uh, there will be a massive amount of chaos here at the church uh, as thousands come to register uh, to enter into VBS. Uh, the beginning of this year, we decided to expand our VBS to 500 children, and that thought we would have plenty of room, and by March, it was all full already. So... Uh, We have hundreds and hundreds of children coming in this week, and I mentioned that not only to set your hearts at ease on the uh, uh, preaching from Mount Everest experience, but also uh, just because I would covet your prayers this week for uh, the children, certainly, because they need our prayers, uh, but even more so, perhaps, for the hundreds of volunteers uh, that will be walking into this place day in and day out who have to love kids, manage kids, discipline kids, move kids, direct kids, teach kids kids, care for kids, comfort kids, and everything else kids, uh, so that by the end of the week, those children have experienced the beautiful redemptive gospel, not just in word, but also in action. Uh, Over the VBS time, many of the children will come to know Jesus for the very first time, and those who know Jesus will come to understand the reality of living a devoted life to Him on mission uh, for the very first time. So it is a big deal week, and it is a grand adventure for the children. So just be praying for them. Just as the children prepare to enter into a grand adventure this week, we as adults here also prepare ourselves to enter back into, if you will, the grand adventure that we've been on in the book of Acts. As you know, if you've been part of Mosaic for any given period of time, we've been traveling uh, from the beginning of the Bible story, the beginning of the story of God in Genesis, all the way through. It's been, I think, eight or nine years now. Uh, We're in the book of Acts now. The early New Testament church has emerged, and we are traveling through the story of the book of Acts. Most recently, we found ourselves with Paul uh, sitting in Corinth, which is in the southern part of Macedonia, and we were hanging out in Paul's little office, watching him pen an incredible letter back to the church in Thessalonica, which is one of the cities in Macedonia he's come through. So we've spent some time in the letter of Thessalonians that Paul wrote to Thessalonica from Corinth. We've been sitting with Paul here, experiencing this letter that celebrated the life full of belief, the life full of faith, the faithful life, and also challenged the Thessalonians and us uh, to be able to live that life in sustainability because of all that God has done. And now what's happened is as we sit here in Corinth, we remember as we've traveled with Paul that Paul started back in Antioch on this particular church planting mission. He started in Antioch, was sent out from Antioch, which is where the home church is, the sending church that sent Paul out. He went from Antioch to Galatia, picked up Timothy there, crossed across west to the Aegean Sea, crossed over into Macedonia, spent time then in Macedonia going from Philippi to Thessalonica to Berea 
to, uh, to Athens and then to Corinth. And so we've sort of followed Paul that whole route. Now we're here in Corinth. He's written the letter. We're going to walk out of his office with him and head back into the book of Acts, if you will, following his unfolding story and the unfolding story of the early New Testament church as the gospel moves forward. So grab your Bibles and let's turn to the book of Acts and let's see what on earth Paul is up to now uh, as he uh, continues to move now out of the office and on his way on this mission that he's on. We're going to turn to the book of uh, uh, Acts chapter 18, which is on page 603 if you're using one of the Bibles we provide, page 603. If you brought a smart device or one of your own Bibles, go to Acts chapter 18. We are going to be starting in verse 18. So chapter 18 and verse 18. So chapter 18, verse 1 through 17 Paul is in Corinth. Remember when he got to Corinth, he had been highly persecuted in a number of the cities in Macedonia. In fact, all of them except for Athens. Uh, In Athens, there was some persecution, but not heavy. When he got to Corinth, the persecution started again. Uh, But God told him, I'm going to settle you here for a while. You're not going anywhere. They're not going to arrest you. They're not going to beat you. They're not going to kick you out of town. Because there's people here that are my own that we need to rescue, and you're going to be part of that rescuing. So Paul settled into Corinth for a while. When he got to Corinth, there was a a gentleman, Aquila, and his wife Priscilla, who had come down from Rome because Claudius had kicked the people out of Rome. And they ended up also in Corinth. Paul meets up with them and and starts kind of uh, striking up a deep friendship with them. That's going to come into play in a second. So let's take a look in verse 18, what then unfolds. It says, after this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria. So this is a moment in time in the story unfolding that Paul is leaving Corinth. As far as we know, Paul was in Corinth probably around 18 months. It may have been a little longer, may have been a little shorter, but about that kind of time span. Paul is now leaving Corinth, setting sail for where? For Syria. Now this is an important piece of information geographically because it gives us a clue as to where Paul is going, which also gives us a clue as to where we are in the church planting missional journey that he's on. Uh, uh, Syria is where there's a city named Antioch, and Antioch is a church, and in that church is the sending body that sent Paul out in the first place. So what we're going to assume, we're going to confirm in a minute, is that Paul is leaving Corinth and he's heading to Syria, to Antioch, to go and report back to the sending church on all the things that have occurred on the mission they sent him out to go and carry the gospel into. So this is the ending of an epic journey, uh, an escapade, a mission that Paul was sent out on, and he's heading home so that he can go and rest up, so that he can go and report, so that he can go and raise some funds, right? I mean, you know how the missionary stuff works, right? So he's heading back to go and do that, and this is what it says. And with him, Priscilla and Aquila. So we now also know that Paul has struck up such a friendship with Aquila and his wife Priscilla that he's taking them with him uh, heading over to Antioch. Don't know whether his intent was to take them to Antioch all the way or not. We'll see how that plays out in a second. And it says this, at Censoria, he had cut his hair. Isn't that funny? Can we just stop there for a second and laugh? I mean, hello? 
like Luke is telling us the great story of the early New Testament church and the great uh, episodes of Paul. And this is what Luke bothers to say. Hey, uh, on the way to Assyria, Paul stopped in this little town that's a coastal town, six and a half miles from Corinth. So he's just left Corinth. He hasn't even crossed the Aegean Sea back into the region. And by the way, he cut his hair. So you know, got a haircut. I'm like, uh, Luke, hello. I know you're about details, but this is unnecessary. Except for the next line, because the next line gives us a reason as to why Luke felt it was important to mention this little fact. It says this. And so he cut his hair, for he was under a vow. Now, this is an incredible piece of information, actually, because it confirms for us what we thought was happening, that Paul was leaving Corinth and heading back to Syria, which is where Antioch is, because he was closing out this particular church planting journey he was on, and he was going to go and report back to the church. Because as Paul leaves Corinth, he stops in, he cuts his hair because it says the vow he was under is now over. Because you don't cut your hair until the vow's over. This particular kind of vow we're talking about uh, is a vow that is found in the book of Numbers uh, way back in the Old Testament. And it's called a Nazarite vow. And what would happen is whenever somebody wanted to ask God's blessing on a particular endeavor that they were going to go on for a period of time, they would take a Nazarite vow. It may be a vow that is, lasts for months, for years, and sometimes even a lifetime, but it was a vow to say, I'm going to set myself apart for you, God, and demonstrate to the people around me, I am currently on mission in a particular uh, um, uh, endeavor that God is blessing so that we can go and do this. So Paul had apparently taken a Nazarite vow, which included not drinking, drinking strong drink, which is anything alcoholic. It included a few other items, and one of them was do not put a razor to your hair. Because the outward expression of this vow was that your hair is growing. So people go, you, you, you need a haircut. I'm under a vow. Ah, Ah, there it is. Okay, so now we know what's going on. And so Paul is ending his vow here. We don't know where it began. It may have began in Antioch before he endeavored to go into Galatia and then across Asia Minor or north of Asia Minor into Macedonia. It may have occurred after the road of Dam to Damascus where Jesus encountered him. We're not sure, but what we do know is here's where it comes to an end. So what Paul is saying to us, or Luke rather, about Paul is saying this. Paul left Corinth to head back to Antioch. He took Aquila and Priscilla with him. And the mission he had gone on from Antioch is now coming to a close because he went and shaved his head or cut his hair. So the vow where he needed God's blessing for an endeavor was over. The Nazarite vow would also at times be something you brought to the table as a thanksgiving to God, saying, because you blessed me in this endeavor, I'm going to set myself apart and take this vow as an act like a fast would be of saying, wow, thank you. We know that Paul is not thanking God for something he has done. Paul is ending the vow here, not starting it, right? And so we know that Paul is done on this particular run. Let's take a look what happens now. And they came to Ephesus, it says, and he left them there. Who did he leave there? Priscilla and Aquila. So I don't know if he was intending on taking them all the way to Antioch, probably, but they end up staying in Ephesus. Why do they stay in Ephesus? Take a look. It says this. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. This is in Ephesus. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. 
and he sets sail from Ephesus. So Paul goes to Ephesus. Remember, where is he heading to? He's heading to his home church to go and report back. Uh, Do we know that he's kind of done with the mission, that he was on the endeavor he needed God's blessing in? Yes, we know that. Why? Because his hair was cut before he gets to Ephesus. So when he gets to Ephesus, what do you expect he's going to do since he's done with the mission? That's over now, and he's heading to Antioch. What what is he going to do? He's going to pass through Ephesus, get some supplies for the crossover, set sail from Ephesus, head to Antioch. What does he do at Ephesus? He goes to the synagogue, reasons with the Jews. What does that sound like to you? Mission again. You almost feel like shouting at Paul, you're not on mission. Come on. You're heading home. Stop it. You cut the hair. Stop it. Okay? But no, Paul goes in the synagogue, reasons with the Jews, because, you know, he's on his way through Ephesus anyways. Why not? And when he reasons with them, it goes so well that the Jews there say, would you stay with us? Would you disciple us? Would you hang out here? And what does Paul say? Well, actually, I got I to head to Antioch. I'm not actually hanging out right now. But I'll tell you what, I'll leave Priscilla and Aquila here with you. They're great leaders in the church. They've been with me for 18 plus months now. They know the gospel inside and out. They'll hang out with you. They'll disciple you. I'm going to head on toward Antioch. And so he makes his leave and says, but don't worry. It is my distinct plan to return to you. If God wills it, I will be back here. And that's what Paul says. Now look what happens. When he had landed in uh, Caesarea... He went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. Ah, so two things happen here. Number one, uh, we've just had a confirmation of what we thought was true when we read the first sentence about Syria. Where does it say he ends up? In Antioch. So he was, in fact, on his way home to Antioch. Yay, we got that right. But right between Ephesus and Antioch, what does it say he did? He went up and visited the church. I mean, I'm like, Luke, you told me you got a haircut. Now the best you got for me is he went up and visited the church, and then went down to Antioch. What church? Where did he go up to? I don't understand. Why does this matter? Well, here's the deal. The only reason somebody like Luke would have kept it this general is if in generalizing, he was very specific. The only church you would say during this time in history is the church that is up would be the church in Jerusalem. Why? Because you always went up to Jerusalem because Jerusalem was considered the holy city, uh, the highest city, so you always would say we went up to Jerusalem, we went down from Jerusalem. And when you say he went up to the church and then went to Antioch, you know he's talking about the church that was established at Pentecost where James, the half-brother of Jesus, wrote the letter of James out to the church where the leaders of the Jerusalem council are, where the, the guys, the apostles, most of them hang out. Why would he go up to Jerusalem to the church there first before heading to Antioch where he can settle in, get some rest, and report to the church? Well, FYI, they did not have CNN or Fox during this time. They did not have Facebook either. So whatever's happening in Macedonia, there is no way the people in Jerusalem could have known about that unless what? People reported back to them. So Paul, understanding the incredible realities that God had sent him west into Macedonia, remember when he was planning to go into Asia Minor and then up into Bithynia, but God prevented him. The fact that God sends him west into Macedonia was a big deal. And the fact that the gospel has now moved into Macedonia is a big deal. And the fact that the gospels already had impact in Rome is a big deal. How does he know the gospel had impact in Rome? He doesn't know that because he wasn't there. That's right. But remember, Aquila and Priscilla came from Rome because they'd been kicked out of Rome by Claudius because they were followers of Jesus. And so... We already know that the gospel's moved into Rome. It's covering Macedonia. The Thessalonican church is faithful. Paul wants to get up to Jerusalem and say, have you guys heard about what's going on in Macedonia? No, we haven't. Well, let me tell you, it's super exciting. 
and they were excited, and he was excited, and then he went down to Antioch. Then he got to Antioch. Finally, he's in Antioch. The mission is over. We can rest a bit, and this is what it says. It says this. After spending some time there, that's in Antioch, he departed and went from one place to the next to the region of Galatia and Pergia, strengthening all the disciples. I mean, my goodness. He's home in Antioch to kind of chill a little bit and take some time. The mission's over. You've cut your hair. And what's he doing? On his way, he's going to Ephesus, preaching the gospel to the Jews in the synagogue, discipling people, heading over to Jerusalem, reporting about the church, heading to Antioch. When he gets to Antioch, what does he do? He goes into the surrounding regions of Galatia and Pergia, strengthening the disciples there, because what else are you going to do? Sit around in Antioch? Are you kidding me? So here's Paul's little momentary rest. We're about to enter the third great church planting movement of Paul, the the, the third missionary journey. We are in the parentheses right now between the close of the second missionary journey and the opening of the third missionary journey, both of which you would expect Paul to be what? On mission, right? But what would you expect Paul to be doing between missionary journeys after the hair's cut, the endeavor's over, and he's taken some time off? You would not expect him to be living an exhausted life of preaching the gospel to everybody he finds and running around making disciples. That's exactly what he was doing because that's what Paul did. It's all Paul ever did. He did it when he was chilling. He did it when he was on the move. He did it when he was in an endeavor. He did it when his hair was long. He did it when his hair was short. He did it when he was on mission. He did it when he was off mission because when he was off mission, he was on mission. And that's Paul's life. See, this little parenthesis we just stepped into, this little moment in time between two great missionary journeys is the perfect re-entry for us as a church into the book of Acts. You know why? Because we've been in the book of Acts because Thessalonians is in the book of Acts. But you know, we've spent some time in the book of Thessalonians now, so we kind of need to get back into the journey of Acts. And instead of taking a quiet, slow re-entry into Acts and the missional life, I love this paragraph because this paragraph's like, welcome back! If you've forgotten Acts, you haven't forgotten now. Why? Because the major discoveries we made as we traveled through the book of Acts have just been brought right back to the table in two flat seconds for us, right? What is the major theme in the book of Acts? Well, it starts with Jesus. In the very beginning, Jesus is going to ascend into heaven. He gathers his disciples up and he says to them, boys, I am going to empower you with me, with the Spirit of God, with with all of my power. I'm going to give you the kingdom of God and I'm going to give you the mission of God. I'm going to send you into Jerusalem and you are going to go and carry the light of the gospel, light, life, and freedom into the darkness. I'm going to make you my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. That's where the book of Acts began And then we watched them go into Jerusalem. The power of the Spirit came upon them. They were empowered by God. Jerusalem was the starting point and the grand community, supernatural community was born there. We saw great supernatural realities coming out of carrying the gospel and we thought to ourselves, wow, that's awesome. And then people started dying for carrying the gospel. So we realized when you carry the gospel, sometimes you get miracles and you should expect some of those in your life as you carry the gospel in darkness and sometimes you get martyred. (laughs) Yes, you do. You suffer for carrying the gospel. So that's going to be a legitimate end uh, to all of us at different seasons as we carry the gospel. Then we watched the gospel go out despite the greatest opposition, and it went out in a strategy, didn't it? It was on the move. It went from Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth, and it's still traveling. And we have watched this beautiful movement of the gospel like a mustard plant uh, moving its way into the world and bringing all that is needed irredemptively to the world as it traveled. And as we watch this unfold in the book of Acts, 
we started realizing person after person after person that encountered the gospel, what happened to them? They would encounter the gospel. They would have this great awakening of deep devotion to the realities of their soul rescue. And then they would step into reorienting their life to live on mission in whatever little circle they were in whether it was in their town, in their family scenario, in their friendships, in the business arena. We saw it with Lydia, the jailer, Jason, and a number of others, even in Macedonia. So whenever we see an encounter, we saw a mission born out of deep devotion, and the gospel kept moving through these incredible people that are in fact no more incredible than you and I. And that's what we've watched. And as we've watched these men and women on the move, we have watched them do some incredible things. It catapults us back into asking ourselves, what did mission look like? And this is what we remember. The people on mission, including Paul, they've always been on the move. Have you noticed that? They're just moving, man. They're, they're moving as fast as they can. They just, they just go, go, go. They're not sitting around saying, God, when you tell us, if we should do something, and you tell us where we should do it, we'll go do it. Uh, they go, God told us to go to be witnesses, and as we go to tell people about the redemption of Jesus, it's going to happen in Jerusalem, it's going to happen in Judea, Samaria, it's going to happen to the ends of the earth. Tell me where we cannot go. So they've been on the move ever since. Not only have they been on the move, but we have seen that there has been strategy to their movement. There really has. I mean, you see it in Paul all the time. Paul is constantly moving to a place, looking at the region, figuring out where to go next. If something goes badly here, moving down. In fact, there was a journey that Paul took, and what did he do? He, when, he, when he launched out of Antioch, uh, he said, I'm going to go to Galatia first and Pergia and establish some discipleship there of the pl- churches I planted on the first round. Then I'm going to head from there into Asia Minor and head down the coast to Ephesus, which is where he is now, right? Because that made sense. That was the most logical plan as the progression had. They had a plan. They were executing the plan, and they were moving. And here's the other thing we found. They were on the move. They had a plan, and here's the third thing we we constantly see. They were absolutely receptive to, sensitive to, dependent on, and full of the Holy Spirit. You hear it all the time. They say it all the time. And because they were sensitive to, dependent on, uh, sense, uh, full of the Holy Spirit, what we find is as they move along, to execute the plans they have, those plans often change and they flow into the change as though it is seamless. Do you remember when Paul headed out from Antioch through Galatia? He's traveling out, down into Asia Minor. And what does Paul say? Do you remember? He says, the Spirit prevented us from going into Asia Minor. So what did Paul do when the Spirit prevented him from going to Asia Minor? Well, he kept going west. Then he went west saying, we're going to go west a while and up into Bithynia. That makes a lot of sense. They got to Bithynia. They tried to go up into Bithynia. And what did this Paul write? We tried many times to go into Bithynia and the Spirit of God prevented us. So what did Paul say? So we headed back to Antioch because our plans were not panning out. Nope, that's not what it said. It said, so we went west. Just kept going west. We hit the Aegean Sea. We picked up Luke. We headed out into Macedonia. And boom, the entire story we've been enjoying for the last number of months has been happening in Macedonia. See, these guys were on the move. They had a plan. But whenever God diverted the plan, they just went, Holy Spirit's preventing this. Keep moving west. Stay on the move. Keep discipling. Keep bringing the gospel. How on earth did they live in that space with that attitude? I mean, do you feel like that's our lives? Do you feel like, I mean, do you feel like, oh, that, yeah, that's normal. That's how I live. I mean, I, I, I'm focused on mission. 
I, I'm singular on that. I'm not distracted by the hundreds of realities and urgencies in my day that come at me a thousand miles an hour. I'm certainly not thinking about the bills that have to be paid and the children that have to be raised and the jobs I have to have in my retirement. I'm just, I'm just living on mission, baby. It's, it's awesome. And then as I live on mission, I have a strategic plan for my workplace, for my social networks, for my family, and for my children to see them grow in the gospel. And for my neighbors, I'm, I'm uh, working the plan out. I know how it's going to play. And every now and then the plan doesn't go the way it's supposed to go, and then I simply smile and say, the Spirit prevented me. It's no big deal. I'm just going to keep moving west. Does that sound familiar? No, it doesn't. Doesn't sound familiar at all, because that's not how we roll. We're temper tantrum people, right? That's how we roll. Here's how we roll, okay? Number one, we are distracted by the thousands of things around us every day that seem like urgencies that are tugging us. So by the time we remember that we actually belong to Jesus and live on mission is as we're getting ready to, to go to bed and doing our devotional. We're like, oh yeah, that was, tomorrow maybe. And then tomorrow comes and what's right there in front of us is better get to work. You might get fired. You better get the kids up. They're going to be late for school. If they don't go to school, they don't get good grades. They don't go to college. They don't get a scholarship. They don't get a job. And they won't take care of you when you're old. And so immediately you're like, oh my gosh, you got to get on this. And then if we happen to remember mission as we're doing that, and we want to be somewhat strategic, uh, we, 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 we don't have plans. Wait, no, no, wait. That's not, we do have plans. That's, we check, we got that one. We're the plan culture, man. You go to the bookstore, there's thousands of plans, thousands of books. You're you going to do a garden? Have a plan. You already do. I know it. You're building a house? Have a plan. You're raising kids? Have a plan. You got a marriage? Have a plan. I mean, you, you, you're gonna, you, do you have a strategy for your career? Of course you do. You got a plan. You're going to retire? You got a plan. You got financial plans? You got financial plans. We got more plans. We know what to do with us people. In America, it's all about having plans. You got lots of plans. The problem with our plans are they are very different than Paul's plans. And here's why. Our plans, their primary reality or their primary reason or motive for having them is because they give us predictability and control. We go, if we have enough plans and they're strong enough and good enough, they will take us where we want to go. So they feel safe, right? That's not the kinds of plans Paul made. Paul made plans about carrying mission, but the plans were always loosely held because they weren't about Paul. They were about the kingdom of God. So if God wanted to change them, what is it to Paul? Zero. But when God changes our plans, it's a big deal, isn't it? Our plans change. We don't go, oh, spirit prevented. It's all good. Keep moving west. We go, hello, hello, good plan, good plan. Have you not read the plan? I mean, I even prayed when I did the plan for crying out loud. There's giving in the plan for you. And now look what you did to the plan. <laughs> yeah, we, we have a hard time with the plans. When the plans change, we do not like that. It throws us off. We wrestle with God. And then eventually we do things like this. God must be disciplining me. God must be trying to teach me a lesson. I'm just hoping I learn the lesson fast so I can get my money back. Right? We constantly, the, the way we get around is we don't go, the Spirit of God prevented it. We just go, oh my gosh, the plans have gone badly. Clearly I'm not blessed right now because God's mad in some way. I hope he fixes it. Paul, on the other hand, lived very differently than we do. In fact, not just Paul, but all of those traveling in this story. What was it that they had that we seem to miss? Oddly enough, in this little parentheses we're in, in this little moment in time between two great missionary journeys, everything we need to know about Paul living in this incredible rhythm is laying right there. 
See, Paul had some clarities about the way God functions and the way the will of God functions that kept him in a zone where he could say, man, I I am content in this journey and fixed and focused on mission. The first thing that Paul absolutely knew and was absolutely convinced of is that this was God's story. It was always God's story. God was writing the story. He was producing the story. He was the creator of the story. Paul was a participant in the story. And Paul was traveling as an honor and a privilege to be in God's story. He was convinced that God's providential plan and will for this planet was going to turn out exactly the way it was meant to. That's why Paul can write things to the Philippians later on like these. For I am confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will, bring it to completion before the day of Christ Jesus. See, Paul can say that because he goes, listen, you don't understand. God's providential will, the plan he has for history and the plan he has for you and me, the redemptive story he's writing, it's going to happen. It's going to happen no matter what. No matter what you do or I do or don't do or don't do, doesn't matter. It's going to happen. In fact, it has already happened because God transcends everything we live in. What do I mean by that? Have you heard the term omnipresent? I'm sure you have, right? God is omnipresent. He is everywhere. We often think of that as a geographical term, don't we? God is here with us tonight in church. God is also in Africa right now. That's awesome. Wow, that's cool. God is also in Asia. Yep, even in South America. And if you want to get really big about this and get really cool, God is also on the moon right now. And on Pluto, is that still a planet? I don't remember. God is in our universe. God is in other universes as well. God is everywhere. Depths of the sea, heights of the sky. Yeah, he is, that's true. But it's bigger than that. See, here's the cool part about God. Omnipresence really transcends time as well. It's bigger than time, so here's what that means. God is presently present with us. And he is presently in our past. And he is presently in our future. Presently. He is right now in our future. We are not there yet. We still have to get there. We have to wait for it. He's not waiting for it. He is there presently. So when we leave this place this weekend and we go six weeks into time, guess where God will still be? Right here. And when we get there in six weeks, guess where God's been all the time? Right there. And so God doesn't know what your future is. He's already sitting with you on your deathbed. He's already sitting with you at the finished work. He's already sitting there waiting for you and I to arrive. And so Paul is confident of the fact that the story that we are experiencing is one that God is fully in control of and in his providential will will ultimately write a redemptive story. God's providential will is God's story. That means God writes it, God creates it, God produces it. You don't, I don't, we participate in it. And it's already been told that it's going to end redemptively. Wow, that's a big deal. So Paul can constantly go, it's all good. How do we know in this passage? Remember what Paul said to the Ephesians? Paul, please stay with us. Please, we need you. We need you. If you leave, it's going to go badly. This is Priscilla and Aquila. They'll be hanging with you. I promise you I'm planning to return. What? If... God wills it. See, Paul wasn't throwing that out like the little cliche thing we throw on the back when we're lazy and say, I'll do the dishes if God wills it. We'll see. 
No, 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 no. This is Paul saying, I have learned enough to say that if I have plans and I'm running down those plans, that that's my plan. And if it works out that way, I'll be there. But God may change that plan. The Spirit of God may prevent me from returning. There are plenty of letters where Paul writes and says, I tried to get back to you guys, but God prevented me. I had a plan. It didn't work out. So now I'm here. Here's the story. Paul was always convinced of this. I'm going to participate. I'm going to make plans. I'm going to go for it. I'm going to move west. And if God prevents something, I'm going to say this. God prevented me to go south. I'm going west. God prevented me to go north. I'm going west. Stay on the move. Keep figuring out new plans. Keep moving. Trust God. His providential will is enough. God doesn't just have a providential will, though. God also has a moral will. God has a providential will, the big story he's writing, that's his story, but he has a moral will, a construct of righteousness that he has given the human race to say, when you live this way, then you live safely and protected. Now, the law, the moral construct, was the weight that was on our shoulders before the redemptive work of Jesus. Why? Because in our sin nature, we could not live in or up to the law, and so it became that which condemned us because the law was necessary for us to be able to be right with God, but we couldn't fulfill it. But after Jesus redeems our story and our redemption, our rightness with God is an act of the work of Christ, not the law. The law doesn't simply become irrelevant, does it? It doesn't disappear and go, you don't need it anymore. You know Jesus, go do whatever you want. Well, theoretically, if you did whatever you wanted, the reality of the work of Christ would not be diminished in your life, but you would live dangerously and have zero structure or safety or anything else on this planet. God gave us the moral law to keep us safe, to say this is God's protection for you. Paul here in this little passage, what do we find him doing? After he's done in Corinth, he goes off and he gets his hair cut. Why? Because he had taken a vow. What kind of a vow? We know by the haircut, right? A Nazarite vow. Where does the Nazarite vow found? In the book of Numbers. What's that from? The Old Testament. What's that part of? It's part of the structure of the righteous uh, sequences of God. Why would Paul take a Nazarite vow? Didn't he write to the church in Galatia saying to them, don't bother with circumcision. They don't need outward signs anymore of that we belong to God. Didn't he write in the ch- in the, to the church in Galatia, if the law is trying to make you right with God, then you're crazy. The law will fail you. You will fail the law and the law is bad. So why would he be doing things now where he's living in the system that God gave us in the Old Testament? Why? Because Paul is not an idiot. He's going, the law is not abolished by Christ. It is fulfilled by Christ, leaving it now as a safety net. God's moral law is your protection and mine. And when we live in the construct of his righteousness, we live safely and freely. It's like a pool fence keeping us from drowning on the other side. And Paul said, I'm going to trust God's providential will. I'm going to obey God's moral will. That's what I'm going to do. If God says it, I'm going to do it. Not because I have to, but because I know if I do, I'm safe. And then Paul knew that God had a personal will for Paul. He has a personal will for you and for me. Ah, now we're into the gray one, aren't we? Got the providential will, trust it. Got the moral will, obey it. What about the personal will? How does that work? 
Well, most of us in our context, we're so concerned about our story, we've forgotten the providential will, that we want God to tell us what his will is for our story so we can do what we're supposed to so that we can do what's right so that he'll bless us, right? So we're constantly going, God, God, what school do you want me to go to? God, what college should I pick? God, what job should I pick? God, what person should I hang out with? Please tell me, should I move here or should I move there? I don't know. And we wait and we wait and we wait for God to tell us so we can do something. Thing, and we sit. Here's what Paul understood. That God's personal will for Paul was far more simple than that. Here's God's personal will for Paul. Jesus came to this planet, did the great redemptive work, and in so doing, when we encounter the great news of the gospel, what happens to your soul and mine? Our soul is rescued. At least we experience the soul rescued in. Oh my goodness, my soul is rescued. Unbelievable. I was dead in my sins and transgressions. I've been made alive in Christ. That's amazing. What is the implication of the soul rescue? That on the other end of our life spectrum, when we leave this planet and we leave this body of death, we experience the full implications of that soul rescue in a future redeemed. Instead of being damned, we are going to be with God forever, enjoying the created means by which we should have enjoyed God in the first place in paradise, right? So, soul Soul rescued here, paradise experienced here, there is our wondrous gospel. But what's in between those two spaces? We say it here all the time, you're thinking, aren't you? What does he always say again? Uh, rescued soul, redeemed future, and what is it again? Restored purpose. That's right, you almost had it. Next time. Restored purpose, right? God had a purpose for us. What was it? He created us to know God fully and to make him known. When we lost the Garden of Eden and we lost the intimacy with God, we lost that purpose as well. God has restored that purpose to us. So what do you and I exist for now? To know God intimately in his freedom through the works of intimacy, the disciplines of the faith, the Sabbath rhythms, the Jesus ways, the, the ways that we connect with God. And as we experience the fullness of God because of the work of Jesus, we begin to live in that freedom in the righteous moral uh, will of God. As we trust the providential story of God and as we do that, people look at our lives and go, man, what on earth is that? And we go, that's the freedom of Christ. Wow. And we begin to display the realities of Christ to each other and to the world. That's what we're supposed to do. So, which school do you do that at? I don't care. Pick one. Pick a school. What school? God, what school am I supposed to? I don't care. Pick one. Go. What job am I supposed to? I don't care. Pick a job. Go. If God tells you go to this school, well, then go to that school. And if he doesn't tell you, go west. Right? I don't like mean California. I just mean keep moving. Right? Pick a school. Go, pick a job, go. See, we're so concerned so often that God needs to reveal some grand will to us and God already has. As you go, preach the gospel, make disciples, care about those in need and be ambassadors for me. Good luck, go, I'll be with you. See, that's actually our restored purpose. And so Paul understood this. Paul understood it's God's story. God has a protective reality in the story, his moral will. I'm gonna obey that. I'm gonna trust his story. And I already know what I'm supposed to do. So until God tells me specifically where to go, I'm just gonna keep going. And when he tells me, stop here, turn left, I'm gonna stop and turn left. And if we function that way, we function in the freedoms that Paul finds himself here. When God changes the plans, great. When God doesn't, great, doesn't matter. Because I'm living out the will of God because I have a clarity on the will of God. It's his story, his providential will. He's given me a moral will, his protection, and my personal calling is to walk out of here and be on the move 
with a plan full of the Spirit. So go, as Augustine once said, love God, then do what you want. I love that. Think about it for a second. What? Yeah, if you love God fully, what are you going to go do? What Paul was doing, right? Paul's on his way to rest in Antioch, but he's going to swing by Ephesus, disciple a bunch of people, launch a church, plant a church, go report to the church in Jerusalem, go to Antioch, and then disciple the people in Galatia. Yeah, that's our life, and it's awesome. Our greatest freedom, folks, our greatest privilege is to remember the clarity of the will of God, that he's got the story, he's given you the protections, and he's told you what to do. Wherever you find yourself, in whatever relationship, in whatever circumstance, in whatever resource reality, in whatever geography, go do what God's called you to do. I'll go do what God's called me to do, and it's the same thing, to carry the gospel into a dark world, to know him fully, and to make him known out of that freedom, and we will be living in the beauty of the story of God, free of the hassle of constantly feeling like we got to get what we want because our plans matter. Instead, we'll be saying, God, it's your story. My plans were part of it. You've changed them. I'm good with that. Let's pray. God, thanks for your incredible love for us and all the ways in which you consistently reveal and demonstrate to us the freedom that you've given us in this life. That, that we have clarity on, on who we were, on the great work you've done to rescue us and to make us who we are today, that you've rescued our souls through your redemptive work, that you have invited us to participate in your providential story by living freely under your moral will, not because we must, but because we can, and then expressing that freedom in the personal will you have for us to be ambassadors of Christ, restoring, restoring our purpose, and all that only for us to leave this planet and discover the full expression of our redemption. God, whatever circumstances we are in now, however beautiful or tragic, difficult and terrible, whatever relationship dynamics we have now, however beautiful or however difficult and tragic and terrible, whatever resource reality we find ourselves in, however challenging or however uh, full it is, would you help us to remember who we are, to have clarity on our restored purpose, to know that this is your story and we're getting to participate in it, that we're safe when we do it your way, and that we're free, totally free, when we live every day carrying the gospel into those circumstances, relationships, and resource realities. Set us free from the burdensome need we have to have things go our way and help us to trust things as they go because your way will always lead to freedom and redemption. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.